I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 22. We're beginning Matthew 22 this morning, and I'll begin by reading our text, which is a parable. Beginning at verse 1, listen as I read. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go to, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, uh, it's been great to see many people um, that are familiar and then seeing some familiar faces come up from the lower 48 to be part of, a, I think, an interact board meeting. Uh, so thankful that they're all here as well. And Part of people that were here when I first came 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I did. I was a, a youngster then of the ripe old age of 37. I thought I was older, but I was not older. Now I'm older than I was then. And um, 15 years, uh, well, I'm beginning my 15th year. So that's like, you know, some 14 plus years ago. And uh, I came here Almost, I, mean, I came with one visit, but it was like sight unseen to Anchorage because Anchorage was so different. Alaska is so different than anything I was used to or accustomed to. And now, having been here this long, all of my experiences are reacting to my experience here rather than in reverse. You know, when you first come to Anchorage, it's such a diverse place and the weather is extreme. It's different. Uh, there's things to persevere through. Uh, downtown, there's 97 different languages represented in the public school there, which is second to like New York City. So it's just diverse. There's not sort of a one culture mindset here. You've got people with military from all over. You've got oil patch. You have the fishing industry. You have cargo, shipping, the airport. This is like a giant gas station in the world for planes to come and go. So it brings all kinds of diversity and variety and what I used to do was think, okay, you know, this almost feels like the four seasons, kind of. And, you know, light and darkness kind of reminds me of my experience from growing up there down there. But now it's everything is reacting to my experience here. 
And that's because it's become more of a home to me. But there is a mindset that I have that uh, sort of compels me to be here more than anything else. And that's found in what Jesus ends the parable with in verse 14. It's the phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. And this is a pretty heavy, weighty phrase if you think about it. But on a functional, practical level, it can become your reason for being. It can become your raison d'etre, calling people to Christ, uh, living for Christ in such a way where you're meeting people and you're just saying, I want to introduce you to Jesus. That's a wide um, sort of call for all of us to live that way and to do that kind of mission. But you have to do it with a particular mindset for it really to, I think, be something that's compelling. And that is you call and God chooses. You're the one who's given the gospel and God's the one who behind the scenes draws people whom he wills to come to him. Otherwise you can live in a really discouraged kind of fits and starts and starts and, you know, stops uh, in terms of talking to people about Jesus and then not because you're discouraged because you are looking for a result that God doesn't have in mind. Instead, Anywhere you live, and particularly in Anchorage, Alaska, you can live out this verse by calling people to Christ and leaving the results up to God. God is the one who draws. We're the one who calls. And we can live in light of that. Christians call everyone while we watch Christ bring anyone he chooses to bring to himself. This is the evangelistic formula for life. I've witnessed to people in sort of random ways where you bring up Christ and you're kind of introducing yourself in the middle of that conversation. And I've had people that I didn't anticipate connecting with connect by watching me try to evangelize this person. And then this person says, you know, I'm really interested. I want to learn more about Christ. And a lot of times that's our experience. We have unanticipatable, unexpected results as we live for Christ and we talk about him to other people and then the unexpected people come to him. That's what this parable is all about. Jesus here is setting expectations for after he's gone that the disciples are supposed to live in light of. And these are expectations for us as well as Christians in the 21st century. We live for Christ. We share Christ. We talk about him. We're unashamed of him. And then certain people connect with that. Many don't, but some do. This is such a transient place that in your lifetime here, even in a decade here, you can interact and engage all different kinds of people that are coming and going that are here for a little while and then are splayed out around the world through wherever the Lord takes them. And that is part of where we call people to Christ. And you call people to Christ in transient Anchorage, but you also have to understand that Bush, Alaska, as transient as Anchorage is, Bush, Alaska, the 250 villages represent the ancient world of Alaska. So you have this two dynamic um, thing going on where you have 300,000 here and 700,000 out there. And those people, many of whom are staying generation after generation in subsistence living and the like in these villages. But the gospel formula is the same if you're in a village or if you're in Anchorage. You're just giving the gospel, you're speaking the truth, and you're leaving the results to God. What are the two big deterrents to evangelism? What keeps you from sharing Christ? Let me just suggest two. One, personal rejection. 
I think we're afraid to share Christ often because we feel like as we share Christ, we're actually being rejected, not Jesus. Jesus is very personal to us. We love him. And so as we're sharing him, we're, we're literally sharing our own heart with someone else. And when they reject Jesus, it feels like they're rejecting you, doesn't it? Secondly, there's also practical rejection where when you want somebody so desperately to come to Christ and you share Christ with somebody and they reject again and again and again, it's very discouraging and it's hurtful just in general because you want something for them. So it's hurtful to you and it's hurtful in light of their rejection. It's deep hurt, deep pain. What solves this dilemma is one thing, and that is resting in the sovereignty of God to bring the result that he wants to bring no matter what you do or don't do. There's an illustration of this in Acts 13 where um, the two first missionaries in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, were going out and they were sharing Christ with the Jews. And in verse 45 of um, chapter 13, they were speaking to the Jews, but the Jews saw the crowds, which were the Gentiles who were filling in, and the Jews were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So they're attacking Paul. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said, it's necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jews. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. And then they quote Isaiah 49, and they say, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now listen to this phrase here. It's interesting. In terms of God sovereignly bringing people to Christ, they began glorifying the word of the Lord. In other words, the Gentiles were getting really excited over Isaiah being a quote about them because they were compelled to come to Christ. And it said, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as God was choosing and appointing and bringing to himself, those were the ones who believed. It says, and the word of the Lord was spreading to the whole region. We have to trust God and his sovereignty to bring the result. You say, I've wanted my child to come to Christ. I've wanted my adult child to come to Christ. In the case of the Lakers uh, that, you know, I'm sure Stephanie wanted her mom to come to Christ who didn't come to Christ until after she was in her 60s. But it was God's sovereign timing that brought that loved one to Christ. Or it's God's sovereign timing that that person hasn't yet come to Christ. It's hard. Ministry is difficult. Acts 18 is Paul's testimony where he wanted to leave the mission field of Corinth. It was a hard city to live in, very similar to Anchorage, I'm sure. But God sent Paul a vision in verse 9. It says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I'm with you, which is comforting, and no one will attack you to harm you, which was comforting. But listen to where the comfort really was. He said, for I have many in this city who are my people. There are people in Corinth yet to be evangelized. They're my people. I know who they are. Go out and get them. And so Paul stayed another year and a half in Corinth based on the sovereignty of God. And he taught the word of God there. Practically speaking, trusting the sovereignty of God, which just means God is in control. Okay, I want to define that for you. He's in control. Trusting God being in control of your daily life we're responsible and we, you know, we're moral free agents. I understand that. But God has this blanket of sovereignty where he is ordering your life around you and the events that are taking place. Resting in that reality is how you get through life. 
Jesus is in the middle of his Passion Week when he gave this parable. You remember, this is the third parable in a row he's been, uh, he is given here on Wednesday, probably, Wednesday, Thursday. He's getting ready to be delivered over to the authorities. And he wants to make sure that he sets the dial for the apostles, for the disciples who are his followers for after he dies and goes to heaven. Jesus will, will rise from the dead and he will, he will be at the right hand of the Father. He wants to leave them with an appropriate expectation on life, a philosophy, a formula for living, which is tell people about Jesus and leave the results to God. You say, but I'm worried about politics. It's an election year. You know, it's the 2024 is coming up and things are getting weird. Now, I'm not going to get into, you know, too much nitty gritty, but you read the news and it's weird. You see agendas and dynamics and people lifting support and people doing different things. And you go, man, I'm really concerned about that. I'm concerned about my job. I'm concerned about the economy. I'm concerned about inflation. I'm concerned about this and that. I understand those concerns, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is higher than those concerns. If you live by this formula, we tell people about Jesus and we leave the results up to God. That's our drivetrain. And then the other concerns can fall into place as overflow from this commitment to trust in the sovereignty of God. I'm living for God and I leave the results to how I live for Christ to him. If you're taking notes, here's a proposition statement. Jesus sets two expectations for life in his kingdom. Two expectations set here. And the two expectations are many are called. The second one is few are chosen. Two expectations. And it's told in a story form, verses 1 to 7, as many are called. And it begins with the subset of likely guests. Verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, parables are simple stories to teach us profound truths. Anytime Jesus taught a parable, he's giving us a window into kingdom living These are kingdom parables. How are you supposed to think about God in heaven and dynamics and hearts and life in the midst of real practical details? Well, these stories put things into focus for us. They prioritize how we're supposed to think. And it's simple teaching. It's a, the kingdoms compared to a wedding or a wedding feast. Weddings are memory makers. They're, they're very family oriented It's uh, an expression of who your friends are and you're inviting people whom you love and you expect to come. You give formal invitations and then follow up uh, invitations. That's what's happening in this. There was no direct messaging here. So you have a formal invitation to invitees and then you have servants that are sent to follow up and say the wedding feast is now. This in particular is a wedding feast for a son of a king. And so it's very sentimental. It's very important. It's a meaningful event. And the king, verse 3, it says he sends his servants to call those who were invited. Servants, I guess could be translated slaves, but these are servants of the king. They're very loyal and they're going to people who've already been invited to the wedding feast. And their response is unexpected. Because these are people who had received the invitation. You know, this is the time, date, place, 
Whenever you see the invitation, I heard one comedian say, whenever I get a wedding invitation, I see dollar signs behind it because I know it's going to cost me (laughs) to go. But I mean, you know, when you get invited to a wedding, it's a real meaningful thing. You have to make a choice as to whether or not you're going to show up, whether or not you're going to bring a wedding gift, whether or not you're going to do something with this invitation, because it's two people being joined together and it's very sentimental. It's very meaningful. And so these servants were invited and followed up upon by these, uh, uh, these invitees were invited, these guests were invited and followed up with um, by the servants. And the servants are calling upon them. The word kaleo is the Greek word that's familiar to many people who are Bible students. It's the word call and it's used over and over again in this section. It's a theme to the parable. Verse 3, 4, 8, 9, and 14 use some derivation of call. You can see call or the word invited in the translation. It's kaleo. It's the same word. So the call is to those who have been called. That's what the Greek is doing in verse 3 and 4. Tell those who are invited. Call those who were invited. Call the called. Let them know that they need to be there. Now, this is all a connection to the history of Israel and the Jews, I'm sure. The prophets are the ones who are pictured as the servants who are reminding the chosen nation of Israel to come and join the wedding feast in the name of the fact that the Messiah is here. Don't miss that the the main son of the king, the only son of the king is here and he's representing a celebration and a feast because he is the savior and the Jews are missing it. And the Jews are pictured as those who are saying, we don't want to come. We don't like it. Thank you for the invitation, maybe, but we have other things to do. We're occupied otherwise. We don't really feel like going, and we don't feel obligated to even fit in with this person, this bridegroom. The king, though, doesn't become impatient with this response in verse 3. Verse 4, it says again, he comes back with more. He sent other servants, other ones go, saying, tell those who are invited... Tell the called, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves that have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, in ancient times, maybe like an Alaskan hunting trip, I mean, animals were literally slaughtered by the person, by the, by the owner, by the king. I'm sure his servants did that, but a lot of preparation, a lot of work went into this. The feast is prepared. This isn't something that's just coming down the road. This is an event that's happening now. The food is hot and ready. Show up. And we've, we've gone to great cost in slaughtering calves. The, the meat is prepared. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, I just want to insert an admonition here. This is God being patient. That's the picture. It's also our opportunity when we call people to Christ and they say, ah, I'm really not interested to be patient like this, to come back again. And that's what he's doing. He's coming back again and he's not coming with a warning of judgment. He's not coming with, with a, um, a retribution on being rejected. He's not bringing a punishment. Instead, he's bringing gifts. He's, he's saying the, the feast is coming. He's wooing people to come. This is the grace of the gospel. This is the gospel that we dare not spurn. If you've not yet come to Christ, don't ignore the the idea that for a time, God is wooing you. 
In first hour, I was remembering how many lay youth workers met with me. It's, it's emotional in my heart to think about um, people who would come to my house and say, hey, let's play basketball. Let's go to McDonald's. Let's, let's go surfing together. I want to talk to you. I want to have a conversation with you. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve parents who prayed for me and cared for me and wanted me to come to Christ. I didn't deserve a brother, an older brother who was leading me to Christ. I didn't deserve that. But God's voice over and over and over again through the word of God, through messages and through outreach to me, won me over over time. And there was a definite moment at the end of my teenage career where I could have gone really dark and gone hard hearted in rejection where I would go to the point of no return. You don't want to deny the grace of the gospel. The, the greatest sin is to deny um, God's grace, is to deny the Lord and to be apostate. Well, the king is wooing and drawing. And verse 3, they, they would not come. And then verse 4, he says, again, come to the wedding feast. But verse 5 shows a unlikely rejection. So you have likely guests but then you have an unlikely rejection. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Stop there. They, they had no time for this invitation. They have a laissez-faire attitude about this offer. I'm going to go to my business. I'm going to go to my comfort zone where I'm a farmer, and that's what I know, and I can just put my head down and work, and I, I'm comfortable there. I know that you're calling me to this, but instead of going to that and engaging that and even giving my heart to think about that, I'm going to go this direction. I'm going to work my business. I'm going to work my job. I mean, the boomer generation is sort of famous for finding significance and identity in your work life, and people do that again um, today in all generations, but by contrast, some of the younger generations have gone into a no work or a lazy mindedness where they say, I'm calling the bluff on parents who threw themselves into their job instead of spending time with me and I'm going to rebel against that. I'm not going to do any job whatsoever. Both are wrong responses. Trying to find your way in your job or not in your job is completely ignoring, again, many are called, few are chosen. We have to deal with God first and, thing, and flow from there. It's an unlikely rejection. People fall into the idols of identity. But then verse 6 says that there are people who not only are passive, but people are, who are aggressive. It says, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Why this response? It's one thing to ignore the invitation. It's, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go, I'm out, I'm going to do this, not that. But it's an entirely different thing to attack and to attack the servant and to shame and then ultimately kill them. This is stamping out the offer of grace. It's anger that's to the point of being homicidal. What causes this is simply one thing. It's a guilty conscience. It's a guilty conscience. You don't want to come into this invitation because it rips a scab off or it rips open a person's heart and exposes their conflict. You say, what does this look like? Well, if you're you know, in a family where you have an unbeliever that you really love, an adult child, or, you know, somebody who's in rebellion, or 
a spouse or uncle or whomever, and you invite them over and you say, hey, come over. We want to have you over for, you know, dinner time, and we're going to laugh. And if the Christian home is sort of lively that way, we want you to just have fun and you pray over the meal. And you may or may not give the gospel during that meal, but you want them to come. And people say, yeah, I'd love to come, but I just don't want to. Why? I mean, isn't it loving? Isn't the food going to be good? Yeah, all of that is there. The wedding feast symbol is there, but people don't want to come when they're conflicted inside because they they know that they want the love that the family gives them, but at the same time, they're hanging on to something shameful in their heart that they're unwilling to let go, and it becomes the elephant in the room during the meal, and they're dreading that. They've been there before, and they're saying, I can't endure this anymore. And so instead of being passive, if you push too hard, sometimes people will become angry and they'll begin to attack you. They begin to say, I don't want to come because of X, Y, and Z, things you've done, things you've said. But really what's going on is their guilt is controlling them and their shame and they don't want to be part of it. This kind of aggressive behavior was spoken of earlier in the parable of the vineyard. You remember that from a couple weeks ago, the vineyard owner wanted to collect on the grapes and the produce and the wine from the vineyard. And those who had been hired into that vineyard, the hirelings, they ultimately killed the servants because they wanted nothing to do with the owner. They wanted to be entitled. They wanted to be selfish. They killed the servants. And then the owner said, well, I'll send my son because surely they'll respect him. But then they conspired to kill him to gain the full inheritance. This is all driven by guilt. What's the king's response in this parable? Verse seven, look at this. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burn their city. Grace is awesome. It's free. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It's undeserved. You could even say it's ill-deserved. It's awesome. It's boundless. It's incredible. It's a magnanimous gesture of God. But eventually, if you just stiff-arm grace long enough, the door will close And God's wrath will come instead of mercy. You say, well, is that the kind of God that I want to serve? A God that would be angry enough and portray himself as sending troops to destroy murderers? Doesn't he love murderers? Yes, he loves the whole world, but he's also holy and righteous and just. His full array of attributes are always there all of the time. And when grace is at the foreground, you don't want to miss that opportunity. Today is the day of salvation, right? You don't want to shut the door if Christ is knocking on your heart. You want to open it. You want to be available to Christ and let him work in your life. Eventually, all of God's attributes being on display, not one canceling out the other, will will be met with the fact that grace will now be subsumed in wrath and judgment and justice. And this is all of who God is. In the Middle East, even in modern day times, if you were offered hospitality and you rejected that, that would bring great offense to the family and perhaps incite anger. The Syrophoenician woman understood the opportunity for household um, um, hospitality 
when the Jews were rejecting Christ's offer, she begged for breadcrumbs. Remember Mark chapter 7, verses 27 and 28? She was begging to be loved and welcomed by Christ. She had been delivered from demons, and she was a Gentile or Syrophoenician who was falling at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus tested her, saying, the children need to be fed first, meaning the Jews need to be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She understood grace. She understood that we are saved not by ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't protect ourselves from our own sin. We have to fall on the mercy of Jesus. So what kind of God is it that will stop giving grace and lower the boom? Well, it's the one true God who will do that. Remember the flood where God destroyed the world? You know, we're kept for in reserves or fire judgment for our world that rejects the Lord. If God is not grace and truth, gracious, merciful, and a God of wrath and judgment, then we don't have God at all. We have some caricature of God that we've made up in our own imagination that's like this senile old man in the attic who can't do anything. God is God, and by his nature, he is the ultimate status. Listen to this. By that, it's necessary that he will bring an ultimate standard. And this ultimate standard of God's holiness will be met by one of two outcomes. The first outcome is his ultimate status, which carries the weight of God's ultimate standard. It makes everyone answerable to God, either by way of an eternal exemption or an eternal penalty. The eternal exemption comes by one means, and that is by the shed blood of Christ an exemption signed in the blood of undeserved grace. The eternal penalty is a fully deserved judgment. And both options happen for everyone, one or the other. For the chosen, for those who are saved, we are bought by the precious blood of Christ. We are preserved in heaven forever. We are given an eternal inheritance through Jesus. For everyone else, you go to eternal hell. Justice is met in both outcomes. Justice is met fully at the cross of Christ for everyone who will believe, and justice is met fully for everyone who disbelieves, who rejects grace, who is in eternal punishment forever. God's range of attributes, grace and justice, are on display in the cross and equally on display in eternal hell. The second half of the parable moves on to show this grace given to those who are chosen. The formula, again, is many are called and few are chosen. The two expectations is we will call many to the gospel. Many will be called in our lifetime to, to meet Jesus, but only the few are chosen. And that's verses 8 through 13. Look at verse 8. This begins with the unlikely disciples. It says, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Stop there. The unlikely disciples. 
Verse 8 begins with a time marker saying the wedding feast is ready. We're operating on God's timetable, not our timetable. It's when God wants to do things, not when we want to do things. The grace door had been shut on those who were the invitees before, on the Jews who had rejected. Now it's time to operate in a different way. Grace is given. It's totally free, and it's freely given in the highways and byways that are depicted in verse 9. Go to the main roads. Yeah, it was wide grace for the nation of Israel, but now go to the unlikely disciples. The likely disciples are the Jews who had the word of God, who had the prophets, who knew the Messiah was coming. They rejected the Messiah. They hardened their hearts, and so opened the doors even wider into the main roads. Go all the way up to Anchorage, Alaska and give the gospel. That's the mission that we are fulfilling today. The call to reach people from all over the world in this nexus on our globe, on the map, where we can call people to come to Christ. Verse 8, those who had hardened their hearts were deemed not worthy. You say, well, who at all is worthy to the gospel in any regard, whether Jew or Gentile? Who's worthy? Well, Worthiness is not a measurement of who's sinful and who's not sinful. It's not a moral worthiness. Worthiness is measured in terms of who's open and who's closed. Do you see the difference? Uh, The reason that we get Christ is because by grace, we've been open to love Christ and receive this invitation. A closed heart rejects the invitation. A closed heart is blasé on Jesus. A closed heart is bored with Jesus. An open heart wants Jesus, sees the need for salvation, understands what it looks like to be saved. Let me make it real simple. At Christmas, if you give a gift to somebody, especially one of your kids, and and they open the gift and they're sort of blasé on it, eh, you know, okay, thanks, it's great, kind of expected something different, Um, that's a closed heart. That's a bad response. Uh, if, if a kid opens the package and looks at it and goes, oh my goodness, this is so much more than I ever imagined I'd ever be given. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's an open heart. God wants the open heart. What's amazing is on the surface, we think that all of this has to do with our moral decision. That's why we look at worthy and unworthy and we go, who could, all could be worthy? You know, I, I, we are on the surface either choosing to receive grace and choose Christ or rejecting. That's true. But underneath the surface, the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes. This is the divine mystery of the gospel. God opens hearts and he closes hearts. This is the choosing part. And God, by his Holy Spirit, opened your heart. And that's why you wanted God. That's why you wanted grace. It's amazing. God is the one ultimately who is making worthy and unworthy by opening hearts. Verse 9, go therefore into the main roads, the broader roads, inviting all comers, everyone. You know, I was raised in, uh, somebody was asking me where I was raised first hour, and I said, well, in the south. Um, I was raised in the south. I was raised in Virginia, which doesn't feel like it was as deep south, but, uh, you know, it just depends where you are in Virginia. This is the south, and in the south, Christian tradition reigns um, large. It still does, but especially, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it was huge, Um, especially as a little kid, which now we're getting to like 40 years ago or whatever. Everybody loved Jesus 40 years ago in the south. They not just, they just claimed Jesus. They loved Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. Now, how they lived 
was irrespective to that statement. But everybody culturally loved Jesus. Here, the pretense is more stripped bare. People are here for all kinds of reasons, circumstances, job opportunities. They're running from something. They were raised here. There's a beauty in the independence that's here, the ruggedness, but also the unpretentiousness here. I mean, we don't do formal here. Um, we, we are real. And that realness translates into a great opportunity to give the gospel. Because when people hear the gospel, you're going to see it either they're rejecting or they're saying, you know, I really am interested to hear more about Jesus. And, and that's the grace of God in their life. I just want to provoke you along those lines and for you to think about that. Go into the main roads. Invite as many as you find is how many they invited. Do you see that in verse 9? As many as they could find. Verse 10, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, filled with bad people and good people. Now, are we talking moral badness and moral goodness? Well, on the surface, yes, but really we're talking about societal stereotypes. Uh, look at verse 33 of the last chapter, chapter 20, 20 uh, or verse 32 in chapter 21. It's the prostitutes and tax collectors. Those are the societal bad people, the bad people, the people who go to the bars, the people who listen to the worldly stuff, the people who do this or that. Those people were coming to Christ. And then you have the good people, the politicians, the well-to-do, the, the respectable people, the people who are religious, the churchgoers. The, those people also were coming to Christ. They were the unlikely people from both realms. And both of those stereotypes had one thing in common, with, which leveled the playing field. They both were open to Christ. They both received the invitation and wanted to come to the wedding. In fact, they didn't receive a formal invitation from before. This is sort of sight unseen. Hey, do you want to come to the wedding feast? Do you want to learn about this king? Do you want to show him? They're like, yes, I would love to. That's someone who's interested in the gospel. Equal footing, and they wanted in, and it filled the wedding hall. This was a new kind of family, a new kind of situation with unlikely disciples. Verses 11 and 12 takes us to a little bit of a sidebar. Look at this. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. This is a likely guest who's inappropriately there. Now we had learned earlier in the first section, the many are called that there were a lot of likely guests, likely disciples this is one of them who undoubtedly had received an invitation before, a formal one. Hey, time, place, wedding gift. And then was called by a servant. Hey, are you coming? And it rejected, but had rethought it. Perhaps he had found out that there's a crowd. There's a party over there. And that's exciting. And now I want in. I used to think it was lame. Now I want in. And this person must have snuck in because he was inappropriately dressed. He didn't have the wedding garment. This isn't a status symbol. This is just the, the pass or ticket into the wedding. Without the ticket, you don't belong. You're not supposed to be there. He was exposed. Standing there, he would be like someone who was dressed for the beach or the pool in a formal black tie event. 
It was awkward. It was conspicuous. He had slipped in um, through the guard and had made his way in. And it was obvious to the king as he was inspecting the guests and taking in the new group that had actually come. This person was conspicuously, inappropriately there. It was a problem. Garments had been distributed to everybody else and this person was there probably unaware of his inappropriateness, probably feeling very entitled, like he should be there. He was invited before, but now his former rejection of the invitation disqualified him from being there. Hint, hint, think about that on the day of judgment. You're called to Christ. You hear the message. You're being wooed to Christ. Your family's reaching out to you. And you reject, you reject, you reject in blase, laissez-faire, I'll do my job, I'll throw myself into my schoolwork, I'll do this, I'll do that, I don't want it. But then you go, you know, it's judgment day now and I have to stand before the Lord, I want in. Matthew 7 says that the Lord will say, I know you prophesied, you, you say you did this and that, that you were a follower of me, but depart from me, I never knew you. The ultimate sin is to reject God's grace. It's the ultimate sin to reject God's grace and be apostate. Verse 12, look at the graciousness of the king. It says, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He didn't know what to say. He was undressed by the statement and he was inappropriately dressed, not having the wedding garment. He had no defense. He couldn't even speak about all the things that he thought he had, did, had done to deserve being there. He, he was just stripped bare. It was obvious that he snuck in. The only way to be inside this banquet hall would be to be dressed in the garment of the wedding. What does that look like practically? Well, for us in heaven, it's to have the righteousness of Christ. You have to be clothed in Jesus for heaven to work for you. To not have the righteousness of Christ, which means Jesus died to pay for your sins, which means that the life he lived is attributed to you. You have a zero or negative balance, and it's like, no, I'm going to give you the full Christ righteousness balance in your bank account. And that's what, that's what your standing is in, it, is in heaven when you go there as a Christian. How do you get that? Well, you just receive it. You say, yes, I want that. I want this life. You have my heart. Without that, it's like being in outer space without a spacesuit. You're just oxygen deprived and you're going to die because there is a zero tolerance for sin in heaven. God's holiness will cause you to self-immolate because of your sin, and that's pictured for us in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, who was the godliest priest in Israel, in a vision before the Lord, which is a heaven-like experience, he's in vision seeing the Lord Jesus in the temple, which is a picture of heaven, and he's pronouncing a woe judgment on himself, saying, woe is me, curse, curse, curse is on me, I'm dying, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm self-immolating, because of the holiness of the king. Without a spacesuit, you will suffocate immediately. If you go into the Cook Inlet without a wetsuit, you'll freeze to death more practically. 
Survival is predicated upon having the appropriate outer garment. You know this as climbers in the Alaskan environment. Heaven makes no exception. Here's the heavens, heaven's version, Isaiah 61, 10. Um, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has, listen, clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Zechariah 3 is a vision of Zechariah, another priest who's in, um, a priest who's in heaven is Joshua, not the Joshua of crossing the uh, Jordan, but a Joshua later in Israel's history. But he is another holy man. And it says that in heaven, God commands, remove the filthy garments from him. And behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments, a clean turban on your head, a clean turban on your head, clothe him with the garments of righteousness. Luke 15, 22, you remember the prodigal son story? When the prodigal returns, the feast is thrown, the banquet is set, and the father says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Romans 13, 14, we're commanded as Christians to live the Christian life in light of this righteousness that's given to us. And it's said this way, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Revelation 19, 7 through 8, what this parable points to, it points back to the Jews' rejection and it points forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 9, 19, 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. It, is, it was granted to her, meaning every Christian, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. These aren't earning deeds. These are the deeds that were earned for us in Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's the fine linen that is the protective barrier for us in heaven. It's Christ whom we serve here that is the down payment for heaven. And you know that you are in Christ and safe when you know you've received this grace. Well, not only was there unlikely disciples, unlikely followers, unlikely guests, and then there was a likely guest who's rejected. This rejection is met again with righteous indignation. Look at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll be quick with this. Outer darkness is a picture of hell. There's no light there. It's outer darkness. There's weeping and gnashing predicated upon two things. You're angry at yourself and, and you're weeping over that and you're gnashing your teeth and you're filled with regret because you spurned the grace of the, go the gospel while there was still time in your lifetime. You're dreading hell every single day forever because you regret rejecting the grace of God. Please let that sink in. Don't reject grace. Don't spurn the love of God. Receive the grace of the gospel. It's a harrowing reality. It's a harrowing note to end on. But this is what Jesus is talking about. Bind them hand and foot. It's probably an allusion to Matthew 25, the sheep's goat's judgment, where the angels bind people and send people to hell. They're tasked to do that. Being bound means there's no escape. There's no turning back. 
It's a no-win situation. The door of grace has been closed, and you, if you come to heaven unprepared, you are doomed to hell forever. It's the warning of warnings, and it's filled with regret. Ending in verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. You say, well, this is a discouraging sermon to end this way. I mean, how do we lift our spirits at the end of this? Well, we need to be filled with the sobriety of heaven and hell. Many are called. The world is called, but only a few go to heaven. A lot of people want to save the country, save the politics, save the world, but don't forget about the fact that most people in the world, all around the world, are rejecting Christ, and only those who are chosen are going to heaven. How do you know if you're chosen? You say, I don't know if I like that word. What about the word election? Let's talk about that word. You say, well, election's not in the Bible. Well, the Greek word for chosen here is electos. So whatever you believe about election, electos is in the Bible. Election's there. How do you know if you're elected by God to be saved? Well, if you believe you deserve heaven or if you believe you deserve hell, you're going to be in despair. But if you believe that you go to heaven because God loved you enough to choose you and you can rest in that, then you can feel the relief of the assurance of your salvation. I didn't earn my way to heaven. I didn't make up a way for me to get to heaven. I'm not logically arguing myself into heaven. And likewise, I'm not condemned to hell. Why? Because the grace of the gospel intervened in my life. I got the invitation. Here's how simple it is. I was given the invitation. I said, yes. (laughs) How does that jive in terms of man's free will and, and God's sovereignty? Well, that mystery is just held in tension. Ultimately, we believe all of it. Do I believe in free will? Yes. Do I believe man is... Um, a free acting moral agent who chooses God? Yes. Do I believe he does so autonomously apart from the sovereign workings of God? No. (laughs) I believe God is sovereign and he sovereignly chose to save me and that's why I believed and I rest in that. I've received his invitation and my perfect no, but I can rest in his sovereign will. Many are called and few are chosen. This is the philosophy for my life. I'm calling people to Christ. I'm seeing God bring the results of that one way or the other. I was called to Christ, and I I believe I'm going to heaven because I believe I was chosen. Let's get out after it. Let's live this mission. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this story that gives us insight in how to live and how to think, what life's all about, govern our expectations in terms of this. And I pray, God, that those people who are near and dear to our heart, I know that everybody in here is thinking about somebody that they want to come to Christ. And I pray that you would give them the desire of their heart. You put it on their heart for a reason. Let them share Christ. And I pray they would be one to Christ. And if someone here has not yet come to Christ, I pray you would turn their eyes upon Jesus and they would be amazed by grace and would come to Christ this day and receive your invitation, your calling. And we pray, God, that you would draw as you call, and people would come and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.